1: Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pierce. Policy Forum Pod is based at policyforum.net at Crawford School of Public Policy, the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school. If you want to take your policy career to the next level, check out our brilliant range of short courses and degree programs. You can find out more at crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study. This is part two of our special that looks at hopes for the future after the coronavirus crisis passes, as it surely will. In the first part, we took a look at Australia's economy with John Hewson, tackling everything from how we can transition to a sustainable economy to whether the actions taken now to tackle COVID-19 signal major structural changes to come. It's well worth a listen if you haven't checked it out already. But on this episode, we want to explore this narrative of hope further and draw out some more potential positives of this unprecedented crisis. Coming up later, we're going to find out about the opportunities this crisis presents for making our systems of governance work better and how it might spur citizen engagement. But first, global health has undoubtedly taken the hardest hit from COVID-19. At the time of recording, about 137,000 people around the world have died from the virus, and more than 2 million people have been infected. These are high numbers, and the daily updates to them that we're all checking on a regular basis can make them feel like statistics, but they're not. Every one of those 137,000 people have family, friends, and people that love and miss them, Everyone here at Policy Forum sends our deep condolences to all of those affected. Those staggering global numbers mean that many healthcare systems have been pushed to breaking point. Australia seems to have, for now at least, escaped the worst of it all. But health concerns are shaping the way we interact with each other and hospitals across Australia are still bracing for the influx of critically ill patients that might yet arrive. On the other hand, we've also seen an outpouring of solidarity for frontline healthcare workers and increased payments by governments to those struggling with unemployment and mental health. So to start today's pod, we're asking how could the measures being taken to tackle COVID-19 help improve healthcare systems and tackle health inequality? So I'm delighted to say that Professor Sharon Friel now joins us to tackle this question. Sharon is a professor of health equity and director of the Menzies Center for Health Governance. She was previously director of the ANU School of Governance and Regulation. And she's also the host of a brand new podcast called Dinner Ladies Save the World. It's a great title, Sharon. Tell us a bit about the pod and why you started it
2: lovely and thanks for the plug much appreciated um, yeah so the, the dinner ladies save the world podcast which is available via uh, iTunes if um, you would like to listen Um it came about so there's a, a number of senior women uh, across the ANU who over the past couple of years we get together and we have dinner uh, you know just a, a lovely social occasion uh, from a range of disciplines, uh, we've got medicine, public health, politics, policy, ethics, law, oh, communications, national security uh, and we were having a, a and, and I had called as the dinner ladies um, just for a bit of fun and uh, we were uh, getting together over a virtual dinner uh, a few weeks ago and I said Why don't we do a podcast? You know, these are really difficult times. I think we've got hopefully something positive uh, to say. And uh, hence the the start of the Dinner Ladies Save the World podcast. And we were kind of grounding it in the the pandemic and COVID-19. Uh, But talking about a broad range of societal issues, environmental issues, issues of inequality uh, that are all very, very much connected to what's happening to society right now in the face of the pandemic, but really moving forward so that there's a bit of hope built into it uh, going
1: forward. Well, I think hope is what we all need a bit of right now. So I wish you all of of the best with the podcast and we will leave a link to it in the show notes of this podcast. But let's move on and talk about health. Um, Healthcare workers are obviously on the front line in the fight against the pandemic at the moment. Do you believe that COVID-19 might reshape the way we value their work?
2: Fundamentally, I think what, the, this COVID-19 has done is actually shine a light on the importance of the, the real diversity of healthcare workers uh, that are often hidden within the system. So from the, the frontline emergency uh, doctors and nurses, uh, to the you know, the people and um, the scientists within pathology to uh, the people in the, the theaters to the porters to you know just the whole suite uh, of people who are essential to looking after people uh, helping them through times of uh, real worry and anxiety, um, as we have with COVID-19, but just more generally, of course, when people present uh, into hospitals and into primary care, I think we are now seeing the fundamental importance of the spread of people who are in the healthcare system.
1: So it's obviously changing the way we we perceive the value of their work, but will it change, could it change, the the value of their work in terms of how much they are actually paid, because a lot of the people that you talked about there, people like help porters, are not terribly well paid, not terribly well compensated for uh, the work that they do.
2: I would hope so. I, I really, I hope that what this um, emergency is, it's going to provoke in terms of, like, say, not just the the emotional valuing uh, of people within the healthcare system. But the recognition that we, w- we will not be able to have uh, a gold standard healthcare system going forward without these people. And to be able to attract these people, to be able to retain these people, to be able to nurture uh, and allow these people to, to flourish within the healthcare system, they have to be rewarded financially. Uh, uh, as well as a whole lot of other ways, um, re- rewarded uh, appropriately. And I think it'll be very difficult for governments around the world. I think it'll be very difficult for the Australian government to pull back from that now because the public recognise the importance of uh, healthcare workers uh, in that broad sense, but you know, our frontline healthcare workers. Um, you know, without them, this country would have been brought to their to its knees. So, uh, rewarding them, you know, an adequate standard of living is essential for everyone. It's essential for the, their individual health as well as the health of the healthcare system. So, uh, I think it would be very difficult to not uh, reward them moving forward.
1: Now, pulling out a slightly kind of bigger picture, how is the outbreak reshaping cooperation in our healthcare systems? We've certainly seen a a new form of cooperation in terms of of federation. We're seeing this national cabinet. We're seeing state and uh, territory and federal government working together more cooperatively. How is that sort of spirit of cooperation playing out in our healthcare systems?
2: yeah isn't that fantastic that we're seeing that happening within the healthcare system so now you know within so within hospitals do just the hospital system uh you know the medics the nurses across different departments within hospitals connecting into the scientists connecting outside of the the hospital into the wider community you know here in canberra, I know that the the Canberra Hospital is connecting very strongly to the ANU Medical School, you know, to get uh, rapid uh, information in to inform the decision making processes. That is fantastic, uh, and I think it's the the learning uh, that you know something like a crisis allows the leapfrogging over some of those institutional blockages. You know, it's kind of these are huge big uh, organizations. We know that sort of path dependency. You know, trying to reorient the Titanic uh, is a very very difficult thing to do at the best of times and what a crisis does is it says you know get over yourselves we have now got to speak to each other and we've got to do it rapidly Um, and also I think what um, I hope will become visible increasingly over time is the leadership that is being shown within the health systems Uh, so we've had I think important leadership from The chief medical officer, the deputy uh, chief medical officers uh, and the the Minister of Health but actually the kind of the quiet heroes within the healthcare system been able to bring people uh, along with them And then, of course, reaching beyond the the hospital. It's so important that we don't just think that health and healthcare happens within the hospital. It happens out there within the community, within the um, primary care, primary healthcare. A very important collaboration happening uh, right now within the country between these systems uh, of care. And what I hope uh, we also will see and will be strengthened is because what we'll come on to speak about is the importance of keeping people healthy and keeping people well and preventing disease actually happens beyond the healthcare system and so the the collaboration that needs to take place between health and other sectors and all of that really uh, is is, is, is happening, it could be improved, but you know, that is happening over time. So I think, and and, and maybe just to finish on the, the point of sort of collaboration, you know, the new forms of leadership that we're seeing, uh, I'd like us to see more of, um, much more inclusive leadership, listening to different perspectives, making judgments, of course, trade-offs are having to be made, you know, balancing between different priorities is having to be made. Um, but I think that form of inclusive emerging over time uh, within the, as we've had this uh, emergency response having to take place has been really, uh, really impressive to watch.
1: Now, we have seen, as you said there, uh a lot of cooperation in uh, Australia's healthcare systems, and we've seen that on a country level as well. But we're recording this on Wednesday, you know, and today President Donald Trump said that he was suspending uh, finance to the World Health Organization. Now, I would have thought that one of the key lessons that could come out of the coronavirus crisis is that we are all in this together. You know, our, our health is, is linked on a global basis. So what does that mean, for the future of the World Health Organization. What role is that going to play in terms of, uh, of, of helping this kind of global cooperation around health?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a terrible thing that's happened with Trump, uh, saying that he's going to withdraw the funding to WHO. Uh, That constitutes around about 14% of WHO's budget. Uh, So it's not an insignificant thing at all. So member states contribute money into the World Health Organization uh, to enable them to provide the global leadership and the authority uh, to... Uh, progressive. But that's so important, uh, particularly in low and middle income countries, but not just there. Uh, the the role of WHO. Um, Trump has said that he's going to provide money directly to countries now. You know, which countries are going to get money from WHO? Uh, where's the accountability within all of that? Is it the pet project that? Um, Trump and his administration and all of the sycophants surrounding him uh, are going to try and inform that. So it's it's a really terrible, terrible thing for uh, the US uh, to stop funding into WHO. Um, now is absolutely the time for global solidarity. Now is the time for global cl- cooperation. We see WHO uh, cooperating with the IMF, with the World Bank, with some of the big regional um, institutions uh, and, of course, with their member states so you know countries for us we're here in the asia pacific region some of the countries uh, across the pacific islands have just been battered by uh, the cyclone who are uh, now incredibly worried about something uh, like this uh, pandemic if they don't have who support to help them through all of this they're really going to struggle so Global cooperation and solidarity is essential. And I should also say, if we think about some of the incredible successes that we've seen in public health uh, over the past number of decades since WHO really came into being uh, back in the, the 1940s, you know, the eradication of in, in major communicable diseases, some of the... Uh, the um, progress that we've seen in reducing non-communicable diseases like cardiovascular disease, like some of the uh, cancers. That wouldn't have happened without global leadership, global health leadership, which came from the World Health Organisation. No country can do it on its own. So really important right now uh, that member states within WHO really uh, rally around uh, and sing from the same hymn sheet, as it were, to say, come on, the US, you've got to come back into WHO and we're all going to support uh, this incredibly important uh, global health institution.
1: Now, let's move on to talking about people's health individually. I mean, we've seen over the last couple of months that global travel is obviously drying up, some heavy industry and manufacturing has slowed, energy demand is declining, and fewer people are using fossil fuels to power cars and trains and boats. And all of this has led to a reduction in CO2 emissions with major cities around the world recording significantly lower levels of pollution. We've all seen those photographs of, uh, of of famous parts of the world which are normally very heavily polluted where the skies are suddenly clear how is all of this going to positively impact on people's health?
2: Yeah I mean I think some of the uh, changes that have taken place in terms of emission reduction pollution reduction uh you know, that will uh, lead to potentially reductions in respiratory uh, conditions. Uh, the emissions reductions will sort of feed back into the system, system as it were, and will not have, uh, you know, by by having lower um, greenhouse gas emissions, that means there will be less uh, pressure put on global food systems, for example, the agricultural systems, you know, because it can affect Uh, agricultural productivity uh, yields so global food supply has been less impacted so there's a a positive feedback potentially back into agricultural systems uh, and that's a good thing in terms of global food security and and here of course as well as in Australia Um, and so what we've seen uh, in terms of the the immediate response to the pandemic and some of the policy measures that have been put in place as a consequence of the pandemic has been, I, I speak about this in some of my work around the um, a consumptogenic world, you know, all of the kind of the settings that are in place that lead to excess production and consumption. That's all now being pulled back, uh, in a sense, through, as you say, changes in global food systems, changes in transport systems, changes in energy use and energy demand. And so for us moving forward, uh, to keep those uh, health benefits that we're, we will see as a consequence uh, of those changes, we have to make sure that the policies and the policies Um, that have been introduced are maintained so we can't go back to the way it was before all of that because what we'll see then is a a ramping up again of the global greenhouse gas emissions of air pollution so we've got to keep the the policies in place and which are helping uh, influence uh, people's uh, behaviors on a, a daily basis Now, of course, we've got to think about that in an equitable fashion, but maybe we'll come on to that in a a second.
1: I mean, early on in the crisis, Prime Minister Scott Morrison was being was keen to stress that there would be a snapback after the crisis, where we would return to, you know, pre-COVID nineteen policy settings um, and business as usual as it was before the crisis started impacting. But he's sort of dialed down a bit on that sort of language. Does that give you signs for optimism that we will come out of this with different perspectives and different policies in regards to uh, people's health?
2: Yeah. I mean, so if we snap back to the way, way it was, some people will benefit from that. But we will certainly not benefit from a social equity, a health equity and an environmental perspective. That's clear we know that those settings that were in place before were killing people, was killing the planet, uh, and uh, all of that together was uh, really not a good thing at all. So the discussions now going forward, I mean, if you think of some of the policies that have been put in place as a um, an economic and a social intervention to deal with uh, the consequences of uh, COVID-19. So there's been, and this is, just, you know, in Australia, there's been interventions around housing, there's been interventions around early child care and early child development, interventions around education, employment, income, cost of living, health services and social services, that's and all of those things have been some at the individual level uh, for us as people, some have been at the business level, uh, and some have been at the sort of institutional level. Each of those things that I've just listed matter for health. And particularly matter for health equity, you know the the intervention around uh, the job keeper allowance for business and the income support for people, the coronavirus supplement. Having money, having material resource, really matters for both your physical and your mental health. So I'm very hopeful as long as we don't snap back to the way it was, and that we embed and maintain. All of those policy interventions across those areas that I read out, they're they're actually the the social determinants of health. If we can keep them in place going forward, we will improve health and we will improve health equity. And picking up on the discussion that we just had around greenhouse gas emissions and pollution, we will improve environmental outcomes, And surely they are things that I think now the whole national and international uh, discussion that's going on is reimagining a a different world, reimagining a world that we have, um, a society that we have reason to value. Better health outcomes, better social outcomes and better environmental outcomes are surely ways to measure that we have societal progress and I do hope uh, that uh, this government and governments around the world will be thinking about keeping those policies in place.
1: Now obviously there's a focus on the immediate responses in regards to uh, tackling health inequities and you talked about uh, some of the measures that have been put in place there which covers a huge swathe of of society and some of the societal problems that have plagued us over the last uh, couple of decades but how can we ensure that that focus on tackling those health inequities is continued after the crisis? If you were talking to Scott Morrison, or you know, the health minister right now, what would you be saying about specific measures that they could put in place to uh, ensure that those things are tackled?
2: Well, I mean, I think so. They've got a lot of those specific measures in place right now. You know, I mentioned the the income support for people. The Australian Council of Social Services has been advocating for a very long time that people. Require an adequate standard of living you know, to be able to meet our everyday needs. Uh, now, having introduced some of these policy, um, these social policies, uh, keep them in place. Do not roll that back. Keep them in place. And what you are doing is achieving some of your social policy goals and you're going to improve health equity. So you've got this double benefit uh, as a consequence of that. So I, I think, you know, if I was having a, a conversation uh, with the Prime Minister or a whole, uh, hopefully the whole Cabinet, um, I would say, look, you've had the rupture to the system that's created uh, a policy window for you to do something differently and you have shown that you can do it. So it is possible. You've shown that you can do it. And what that tells us as citizens is that you care about us. And if you care about us as citizens, which is what you're supposed to do um, in a democratically elected um, country, you care about us as citizens first and foremost, keep that uh, in place and make sure that as we move forward, you do not snap back to the way it was and uh, that you continue to listen, thinking of that inclusive leadership, you continue to listen to the needs of people going forward. If if I can sort of come back also to the discussion we had at the start around the healthcare workers and valuing the healthcare workers, we're going to see healthcare workers with post-traumatic stress disorder All of those frontline services have been exposed to things that many of us could just never imagine. And the cumulative trauma of that over time means that we have post-traumatic stress disorder. The learnings internationally of how to deal with PTSD tells us that we need ongoing, well-resourced health and social services for those people do not roll back the health and social services investments that you have made in this time of emergency. Keep them in place. And I I think that as a, a nation, uh, we re-engage the building of trust and respect for our politicians. Uh, will be re-energised. We have already seen that starting to, to happen. Uh, and you know that is what I hope uh, that our Prime Minister uh, and all of the, the cabinet members will be saying that's the sort of society that we want to be helping to lead going forward.
1: I mean finally Sharon I think many of our listeners listening to this would agree with the points that you are making and wonder what they can do to be influencing that kind of positive outcome that that we hope to achieve because governments obviously make the make the decisions on the basis of the evidence that is presented to them on the basis of their party's ideology but of course they're also led by you know voters and Mm -hmm. and and the and the voice of voters so for those people listening what advice would you give to them about how they need to be uh speaking out about the kind of health system that they want in the future
2: yeah, they. for us as, as citizens, we need to be engaged, like constantly engaged. It's not about just us as one individual, but as a collective, Um, you know, voices, voices into the newspapers, into the media uh, saying, you know, this is a really important thing. Uh, we, you know, we applaud the sorts of interventions that we're seeing uh, coming from the, the government, you know keep the investment in the health services and health system, keep the investment in income support, keep the investment across all of these different areas. We applaud that. And this is what we think is really important uh, from our political leaders, but also uh, holding them to account so that if there is any move to start to pull back from those sorts of investments, people are... Uh, Commenting on that, critiquing that. Uh, So, you know, being out there. There are a whole suite of um, coalitions that I've started to to build uh, as a consequence and coming together. So, you know, I I I know within the the public health community, connecting with the climate change community. There's a commission for human futures that has been established that people can engage with that. You know what's the sort of world that you want to imagine? So just the the collective. Uh, organising around a, a shared vision and being vocal about it uh, through the media, directly to your local uh, members. Uh, I think it's just the, the strong, strong voice out there. Many people, of course, um, will be of course uh, sitting at home, I, I hope, uh, feeling you know, it's just so overwhelming isn't it, you know, at this time uh, just the the sense of despair uh, and just the overwhelming the the facts of despair that we're exposed to constantly so it's very challenging I think at the moment to feel uh, energised and want to really engage but now is absolutely the time to just to reach out electronically um, to to give those messages to politicians uh, via a whole number of uh, different avenues that I've described.
1: Now I can't let you go, given your given your accent and uh, you know our shared our shared UK heritage. Without picking your brains about what is happening in the UK at the moment, I mean the NHS there was chronically underfunded for decades, and we're seeing some of the result of that in the crisis and how it's unfolding there, where it's having a devastating uh, impact. But the Prime Minister Boris Johnson himself. Contracted uh, coronavirus, and he seems to have have had a uh, significant change of heart in terms of the importance of uh, the healthcare system and the importance of healthcare workers. Do you look at that and think that's a system that is likely to change for the better post crisis?
2: Yeah, I mean, isn't it incredible? So you know, there is this sort of uh, you know, this institution uh, in Britain, the NHS, which you know. For decades and decades and decades has had survived. You know, even at the time of Thatcher, when you know she was trying to introduce incredible cuts to the NHS, it still sort of uh, survived. But it's just been getting chipped away at. Uh, you know, in the past uh, number of years, just, just shameful. And now, yeah, Johnson has this uh, epiphany when you know he has to be in there and seeing. Actually, what it means to be in a public healthcare system uh, that saves lives. So, you know, whether you know, having gone through that, and yeah, certainly now you know he's making all of the right noises about you know reinforcing the NHS uh, going forward. which is often the case, of course, isn't it? You know, it's that personal experience that actually helps make the difference in trying to shift action. I do always remember a colleague here in the ACT, uh, Michael Moore who was the ACT health minister and, and he speaks uh, very uh, openly about how you know it's the, the personal experience and the personal stories that actually can help persuade a minister at a time when you know, of course you have to work out where to invest money so I hope my goodness we cannot let the NHS um get any further into disrepair it was such a, a marvelous example of universal free health care uh, that just saved millions and millions of, of people's lives. I, I hope now uh, the, the government in, in Britain will invest in it properly
1: well there has been lots of positive messages in there so thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and sharing your insights and sharing your expertise with us Sharon it's it's really appreciated.
2: Uh, Thank you. Thank you for inviting me to talk. I think uh, it's very important. uh, The the policy forum discussions are are so important.
1: That's wonderful of you to say. And all the best with the podcast.
2: Thank you. Dinner ladies save the world. Tune in to hear us.
1: Listeners, we'll take a quick break there, but when we come back, we'll have a look at how this crisis might be an opportunity to rethink and reshape our governance structures and also increase citizen engagement. Stay with us.
0: Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online
1: Each week on the Democracy Sausage Pod, we serve up fresh meaty analysis of Australia's politics and policy and chew the fat with some of the country's leading experts. It's the podcast for those who like sizzling scrutiny with just a touch of sauce. You can find Democracy Sausage on iTunes, Spotify or at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, in this last part of the podcast, we want to discuss how this strange new normal that we are all living through is affecting Australia's governance structures. The recent bushfire crisis revealed some problems in coordinating efforts between federal and state governments. And while the formation of a national cabinet is an attempt to mitigate against confusion and inaction... Issues like the mishandling of the Ruby Princess disaster reveal that challenges of Australia's federal system remain. So with a spotlight shone on these issues of coordination, in this final part we want to ask, could the coronavirus crisis present an opportunity to improve our governance structures? So with me now to discuss this question is Carolyn Hendricks. Carolyn is an Associate Professor at Crawford School. She's also a Senior Visiting Democracy Fellow at the Ash Centre for Democratic Governance and Innovation at Harvard University. Carolyn, it's great to have you back on the podcast. How are you? Well,
3: thanks, Martin. How are you going?
1: Not too bad. How is our new uh, socially distancing world treating you?
3: Well, look, I I feel a bit isolated, I have to say, but these kinds of um, opportunities, you know, to connect with colleagues are really important, and I've been doing way too much Zooming, so yeah, I I feel connected, but in a kind of one-dimensional way.
1: (laughs) So let's start this off by having a look at, I mean, both the bushfire crisis and COVID-19 have revealed issues surrounding coordinating efforts between federal and state government, so that we have seen the instigation of this national cabinet, could the crisis be seen as an opportunity to improve these governance structures?
3: Yeah, so, I mean, I guess it's interesting because the two different crises had a different sort of way in which they played out, and it may be that because the bushfires came first, the federal government took a much more kind of um, coordinated approach with the COVID-19 um, and I did did hear at one point, you know, people saying that certainly if we took a response to, to to pandemics as we do with bushfires, so there's different ideas out there about how coordination ought to work in different kinds of crises. And I think one thing for sure in a federal system is that some sort of coordination is needed. Um, I think the the, the COVID um, crisis has really. Brought home um, the power of the states. I think that they can, and and also the bushfire um, crisis, but also the need for a, a national kind of um, coordination as well. So it has brought out, I think, a lot of tensions. But I think it's also demonstrating actually that we are in a, a federal system where there is room for experimentation. And so you saw that with the initial lockdown. Preferences of the state, We're states where states where Victoria, New South Wales, and the ACT really wanted to take a, a slightly more um, radical approach to lockdown than the federal government was prepared to do. Um, so you know it is a, is an opportunity for states to exert their their preferences and have those conversations rather than having to work under a sort of central government. So yeah, I, I think think the both crises are going to demonstrate. Um, the need for, for better coordination, but I, I also think that the the states are flexing their powers and I think this will increase as the recovery with COVID moves forward because you're going to have differential effects um, of the virus and that is going to lend itself to different states actually saying, look, we, we can take a different path to, say, South Australia or to New South Wales. So I, I think the, the differential um Kind of response by states is going to be needed, and so this, the federal government's going to have to partner, but but allow some of that sort of um, regional difference.
1: Do you think that uh, Australia's federated system has worked well in this COVID crisis?
3: Look, I don't know. I mean, there's different pros and cons around um, federalism, and I think for me, what I'm observing is is sort of some of the benefits of federalism, which is that you can you can allow for that regional differentiation you know so if you're in a, in, a, in a state where that you don't have many um you know sort of virus outbreaks then i think that actually allows for for a nuanced regional response um i guess it it, it becomes difficult when when you're trying to to match those regional responses with um national issues around for example the sourcing of particular equipment or supply chains so that that is where that sort of you know coordinated response is so crucial um, and we're in uncharted territory. So, I mean, I think some of the um, very specific requests that this virus has required governments to consider, right from you know changing welfare systems, right through to you know supplying particular um, medical equipment, it's really tested um, the way in which we divide up tasks between state and federal governments in Australia. So, there might actually, in the wake of this pandemic, I'm sure there will be a rethinking of how, how that coordination has happened. I think in the bushfire or general disaster recovery space there's been a lot more thinking about roles and responsibility. I think the pandemic has really, um, yeah, challenged, uh, you know, the government, the federal government to think about how it's going to work on these very specific issues. Um, and I think from my understanding of, of the type of pandemics that the federal government had planned for, they weren't, of a kind of COVID type, they were much more around an influenza outbreak. So the kinds of pandemics that the government, the federal government, had thought through, were very different from the one we're now living through.
1: Now, I, I mentioned before we have seen this, you know, national cabinet that brings together the states and territories with the. Uh, with the, the federal government, but I imagine a lot of their work has been essentially crisis management. It's been dealing with cri- the crisis as they come up. But could the sort of newfound spirit of coordination that we're seeing through bodies like that actually present an opportunity to experiment w- with responses and see what works best?
3: I think the the cabinet idea obviously enables... Um particularly where we've got a situation at the moment where you've got different parties um, in power, it actually enables uh, our politics or political system to sort of move above the partisanship and look at the issue. And I think, I mean, COVID's a very extreme example of that. But, I mean, if you think about the way in which Victoria and, and New South Wales at the moment have been able to kind of really, you know, Put put a bit of pressure on on that within that national cabinet framework, um, and despite the fact they're coming from you know different sort of sides of the political spectrum. So I think in, in a way, we, when you've got a um, you know an arrangement where there's different parties in power in different states, this kind of cabinet approach uh, it could work um, for particular national issues. I think that that deserve national attention um, where. Traditionally, maybe the federal government has said, "Oh, look, that's a state issue, and states can take their own, um, you know, kind of approach." You know, around, for example, like an ice epidemic or or particular public health issues that, that that don't respect borders. So, I mean, environmental management, I think, in different health issues, domestic violence. There's a whole range of kind of, I would say, national issues that could benefit from this kind of coordinated response. And I think, you know, in a way, COEG has done that and does do that. But I guess um, the, the way in which crisis management works is very different from, I guess, around these more sort of strategic conversations that typically happen at COAG. So, uh, yeah, seeing and observing whether this kind of approach to policy policymaking you know, is going to be long-lived, that, that will be an interesting space to watch, I think.
1: Now, over the last month or two, we've seen some pretty seismic changes in both the reach and the role of government, you know, through the sort of massive stimulus packages that have been rolled out, the higher rates of new start, the free childcare and, all, and so forth. Do you believe this crisis could have a sustained impact on how the government handles social issues in the future?
3: Well, look. There's no doubt that I think it's going to be difficult for um, for the government to go back to some of the positions that it had pre-COVID. I think um, you know, new start alone, I think, was a conversation that was bubbling away. A lot of pressure um, to increase that. So I think it would be very difficult for the government um, to, to scale back to where it was. Um, I think it's also given. A lot of advocacy groups that work on social welfare issues—a different way of entering these conversations and and debates. So, you know, I noticed uh, a couple of days ago, ACOS. You know, the framing around um, social welfare—it's not—it's not so much um, about trying to uh, argue that that you know people on welfare need these particular opportunities, I think, because the framing of who's on welfare is much broader now and I think the federal government has openly recognised that this is not just a small slice of society, it's a big cross-section. Uh, so there's there's different framings and I think opportunities that are there that are going to be, um, the conversation's going to be different. I guess uh, there's also going to be a bigger conversation around the fact that. Around supply chains and manufacturing, and we're already seeing this around conversations about, you know, you know, where, where, what's the government's role in in supporting our manufacturing sector, um, and our food production, and our supply chain. So, I, I think in areas that were kind of no go zone pre COVID, I think there is definitely um, a recognition that collective benefits do actually require interventions from government and so even for parties that represent small government they have to concede that markets fail you know that that um, you know borders close there's all these kinds of scenarios um, that we're living kind of in a cluster right now um, and that, that that in those moments governments need to need to step in and they they also need to remain there I think um, because these um, kinds of uh, conditions could rearise. Um, and the final thing I'd say on this, I guess, is just around sort of um, inequalities that I guess are surfacing through COVID. So, I mean, the the government's uh, stepping into a space, um, acknowledging that government has a role to address inequalities, whether that's of opportunities, a circumstance, or even the inequality that some people are more likely to contract this disease because of age or predispositions than others. You know, so we're all, there's a kind of, Recognition that there's a, a collective versus individual tension in some of these issues, and that the governments have a role to step in to protect the vulnerable. Um, and so, I think there'll be there'll be broader conversations around vulnerability, whatever they are, post COVID.
1: That sounds to me like, you know, post-COVID, post the coronavirus crisis, we could be opening up some very interesting public conversations on topics which have largely been off the table for for decades.
3: Absolutely, yeah. And I think um, it'll be interesting to see how party politics then plays out into these spaces once they've been put onto the table, like, is it going to be kosher to just sort of wipe them off again? And I don't, I don't think, um, you're seeing this all around the globe. But I don't think it's, it's an Australian phenomenon. But on top of, on top of this is that the, the table itself, if you want to keep that metaphor going, is crumbling. So, you know, in the context of a, a deep recession, um, you know, it's going, it's going to be hard to keep promising more spending public spending on on things. So there are going to be some difficult public conversations and decisions made around um, what do we keep um, investing or or propping up, so to speak, and and where do we need to scale back given, you know, the where are the kind of debt that it might leave future generations
1: now finally carolyn i'm interested to pick your brains on citizen engagement i know this is a, an area that you've done a lot of work on i mean at a time when we're all largely confined to our homes citizen engagement might not sound the easiest thing to achieve but in actual fact what we're seeing all around the world is new ways for communities to connect to share information and to support each other here in yass where i'm recording there's a community-led COVID-19 assistance group, which provides help and support to those who might be self-isolating. We've talked about how government handles social issues in the future, but how will this crisis change the way that citizens and communities engage with and support each other?
3: Yeah, I mean, COVID has really brought out um, some of the, the best in, in you know, uh, citizens' communities all around the world. Um, and my my colleagues uh, Sarah Mill and Sango Mahatney and I wrote a piece last week for the Conversation um, on the bushfires and the coronavirus around this idea of um, of rupture and how rupture can actually be dis- disorientating and and change the status quo, but it can actually open up moments for new opportunities for for doing things differently. And I guess in the context of of that idea of rupture, I think citizen engagement is a really um, active area at the moment where you see, um, you know, prior to COVID a lot of, Framing around citizens was was that they were disengaging from society, disengaging from politics, um, distrustful, etc. And you know what what we've actually seen is a lot of um, people really rising to this kind of challenge of how do we support each other, how can we um, create a culture of care, even despite the sort of isolation constraints we're under. Um, and, and even more profoundly, just, you know, these sometimes the characterizations of, of um, you know, contemporary citizens is not really that interested in public policy issues or, or even science. I mean, this whole space of COVID has really demonstrated that, that citizens are up to understanding complexities of, of issues, um, are up to thinking beyond their individual patch, thinking collectively, making sacrifices for the, the broader public good. So I think um, there'll be a lot of rethinking around how what we can expect from citizens, um, and also around um, you know what what how citizens themselves can self-organise and actually contribute um, to the social good, so that we don't we don't always need specific processes or structured environments to engage. Um, and I think all that sort of bottom-up, spontaneous self-organising that's happened around both the bushfires and COVID nineteen demonstrates the sort of agency that a lot of us um, can exercise, um, you know, when there's an issue that, that people are, are really concerned about. So it has been a very interesting space to, to, to watch, ironically, in a, in a time when you could say that, that, that most of us couldn't actually engage because we're not able to get face to face. So yeah, lot, lots of interesting things to watch, I think, in that space moving forward.
1: Well, that sounds like a really positive note to end on. So thank you very much, Carolyn, for your insights and your expertise today. It's been great talking to you. Thanks, Martin. Listeners, please let us know what you thought of our discussion today. What are your hopes for positive things that might come out of this crisis? We're always keen to hear your thoughts. And like everyone else, we could all do with some extra optimism at the moment. You can find us on Twitter where we are, APPS Policy Forum, that's APPS Policy Forum, or just send us an email, podcast at policyforum.net. But the best way to get in touch with us is, of course, our Policy Forum Pod Facebook group. The Policy Forum team are all there, along with 500 listeners. It's a great place to talk about some of the issues raised on the pods, have a chat with us and the rest of the pod squad, and get some insights on what we're doing when we're not podding. You can even check out what music we're listening to as we work. Plus, if you join us, you will also get exclusive access to our Ask Policy Forum series, the podcast where you ask the questions. We need your questions now for the next episode of this series, and you can ask us anything from hard-hitting policy questions to our presenters' snacks of choice. So get your questions in for episode three now. We are really excited to hear from you. And please don't forget to subscribe to us. Policy Foreign Pod is out every week on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favourite pod episodes from. And if you feel so inclined, please leave us a quick review. We're always keen to hear what you thought of the podcast. We'll be back with another episode of Policy Foreign Pod next week. But until then, stay home, stay healthy, look after yourselves and each other's, and cheerio for now.